Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. The title of uh, the talk is Embracing Change. <clears throat> Here we are, the first week of the new year. <clears throat> Still able to say Happy New Year and feel good about it. Um, and I, those who were here last week, I um, when we wrote down both uh, our vision for the year, our practice vision, and also the um, things that we wanted to um, diminish in our lives as practice. Uh, just want you to know that we had a nice fire at, uh, at our house, and Jane and I sat and uh, added our own and uh, said goodbye to uh, can't say say goodbye to those things for good, but said goodbye to um, um, being less conscious around them because it is a process where you're moving in the direction of greater understanding and, and consciousness. But I just want to report that that did happen. And uh, the calendar turned. And here we are in a new year. Um, And as I said, it it is, uh, there's a kind of freshness that probably most of us experience at this time of the year. Um, Made it through fresh start. And in this first period of the year, change seems like a really good thing. <clears throat> and, um, and it can be a really good thing. Sometimes change seems like uh, not such a good thing. Especially if things are going well and you've finally gotten your life together, and you've worked hard to put all your ducks in a row, and now you're on a roll, you're not so eager for things to change. When you're really bored, and there's not much happening, you are hungering, hankering, yearning for change. So it's interesting, it just depends where you're at, whether change is a good thing or not a good thing. Mm. But the fact is that whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, wherever you happen to be at that particular moment, it is a thing that you can absolutely count on. Sometimes I, I explain that the, the gift of practice is, is really seeing again and again how things change so that if they're going in a difficult way, there's the courage to open up to it and say, okay, this will pass. And if they're going in a swimmingly delicious way, there's the remembrance, this will pass, and so we're not so confused when it does. And so more and more, the idea isn't so much to arrive at some particular fixed static point, but to really learn to be here for the ride. That's, that's the secret of practice. Often we 
hold on to things, even if they're not particularly pleasant, the familiar is something that is hard to let go of. It's amazing how you know, we can be in the middle of suffering, but it's familiar suffering. You know? It's my suffering. It's kind of, it's home. And even the, the thought of change of the status quo, <clears throat> as unpleasant as it is, at least it's known. You know? But who knows what's around the corner? So we can find ourselves holding on to stuff that has no real value other than the fact that it's a habit and it's familiar and it's home. Isn't that interesting? Um, I was uh, actually inspired uh, to talk about this by uh, when I read a, an article a couple of days ago uh, from the website uh, Nation of Change, nationofchange.org. Anybody get stuff from Nation of Change? Yeah. Mm. Lots of good articles. Um, and this, uh, this article was 10 of my favorite things about 2012 by Medea Benjamin. Medea Benjamin, maybe some of you are familiar with the name. She's the founder of Code Pink. Probably the most, you know, radical, mainstream radical group coming right out of here, right out of Berkeley uh, or the Bay Area. They used to have a... a, uh, uh, a place right on uh, Solano Avenue, the Code Pink headquarters. Uh, some people don't like Code Pink. So if you're listening to this on, online, you know, this is not an um, extolling of Code Pink, but what was interesting is that they're the ones who sometimes go in the middle of Congress and hold up a sign and kind of do, um, uh, you know, disrupt the, uh, the establishment like that. Very committed, very and very um, fierce activists, courageous, mostly women activists. And so when I first saw Medea Benjamin, I thought, oh, what is she going to be really angry about you know, now? You know? <laughs> and, you know, that, there's, there's a value for some people in our society expressing the, the rage that sometimes we all feel. You know? So I have tremendous respect for her. Um, And I was waiting to see, oh, what is she going to really come down on now? But it was a beautiful, inspiring article that made me think about this topic. And mm, I'll I'll try to, you know, just kind of put the politics aside because it's... um, because it's, it's looking at how things change, not just within ourselves, but within our culture. These were kind of cultural um, reflections. Um, and maybe I'll just adjust some of the, the wording so that it'll sound a little better. Um, while there were vicious attacks launched on women's rights, it backfired and fired up pro-choice space. Um, And then she goes on with each one of these, first open lesbian senator, first Asian American senator, first uh, first senator to make the banks tremble, Elizabeth Warren, and on and on about how that um, movement towards putting one... Uh, element of society down, gathered up a whole lot of resistance and backfired. Two, immigration rights, especially young Latinos, mobilized and took great risks to force a change in attitude and a thought in policy. 
Three, more money flooded the elections than ever before, some $5.8 billion. Can you imagine that? $5.8 billion. But most of it went down a big black hole and unleashed a new movement for money out of politics. And just kind of seeing how the ebb and flow and action and reaction and how change comes about not through any particular um, necessarily focused plan, but often just the natural way of things unfolding for, for whatever, for better or worse, the marijuana genie is now out of the bottle with people across the country backing referendums, seeking an end to the decades of destructive, counterproductive drug wars. Five, this year marked a momentous, momentous wins for gay rights. And each of these, there's a paragraph of all the, you know, the elucidations of this. Massachusetts, Maine, Washington, legalized marriage equality, Minnesota defeated a restrictive state constitutional amendment that would have upheld a ban, etc., etc. Now, one-tenth of the states in the U.S. uphold marriage equality. And it's moving, continuing to move in that direction. Six, climate activists have been kicking up a storm. And certainly... One can say, yeah, well, they better be kicking it up pretty fast. We don't have much time. But there is a lot more consciousness, and particularly after the you know, mysterious event of Hurricane Sandy just before the election. So there's a lot more awareness about climate. Seven... Mm, Unions have been hard hit by the economic crisis and political attacks, but workers' gains made in 2012 show potential muscle. Again, there's a backfire. Try to put somebody down, and there's resistance. It's kind of like when you go to the gym and you have to have resistance. You know, That's what gets you strong. Eight, on the foreign policy front, Opposition to drone warfare is on the rise. May it continue. Nine, the international movement for Palestinian human rights has gained unprecedented momentum. And ten, after nearly 15 years of house arrest, Burmese opposition leader, a Nobel Prize, Peace Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi, was elected to parliament. pretty far out when you think about it, huh? And you might say, oh gosh, 2012, you know, we made it through. That was a pretty intense year. It was an intense year. But in between the lines, there's change that happens. And it's, it's often change that comes um, when there's resistance. But the truth is, whether it's, you know, you look back just 50, 60 years or the last 100 years or so between women, I think it was, I just saw in the movie Lincoln, didn't they say, you know, the next thing they'll be thinking about is women getting the vote, you know. I mean, the things that we don't, we kind of look back and say, did they really live like that? You know, women getting the vote, gay rights, um, more and more racial diversity, awareness, and appreciation, and now even pragmatically having to take in minorities into account as our country, our whole demographics have shifted. Um, so... 
This is not necessarily, and I'm going to get to Buddha Dharma in, in, a, in a little while. Don't worry about it. We will get there. But just seeing on a cultural level how um, progress, and I use the word progressive, not in, uh, won't get into the political other than on the um, rights of people, basic rights that our culture really over the centuries has, with blips here and there, sometimes big blips, but generally as there's been more consciousness, there's been more inclusion. And people can, uh, each time there's a change in the status quo and those who are familiar and comfortable with the status quo and don't want things shaken up saying, oh no, this how could we survive this one? You know, whether it's same-sex marriage, you know, that's like four, eight years ago were the big, the big issues. You know, how could we survive this one? How could we survive this one? How could we survive this one? When all the time there's a movement to more and more consciousness, isn't that comforting to think about? That there's a, a forward movement, what is that, what do they say, uh, forward leaning, or leaning forward towards um, embracing change, the inexorable movement towards change and inclusion. So this is, um, like I said, it's not a bad thing, it's not a good thing, it's just a thing, but on a cultural um, scale, it's good to keep in mind that there is more and more greater consciousness that affects all of us, that affects the way we think, that affects our, our basic attitude towards each other and towards life and towards this culture and towards what's right. That is, for those who are um, interested in expanding their consciousness... Now, I, I'm not naive enough to say, oh yes, this is, you know, everybody is a convert now. Um, but if you are the lucky ones who yearn to be more conscious and more awake, then it can only head in the direction of greater and greater um, appreciation and acknowledgement of interconnectedness. And that's just the way... How can you say, yes, I want to be as conscious as I can and I want to be more conscious than them? You know? I mean, we do say that sometimes, but, but on a, on a, on a, a um, societal, cultural level, it's moving in that direction. Uh, there's one of the, one of the people who's... Um, the present, uh, one of the presenters at the at the joy course. This is just coming to me. Is this really cool, amazing visionary named Peter Russell, and he put together a film a number of years ago that blew my mind called The Global Brain. It's you could probably Google it, and uh, maybe it's on video or whatever. But it's it was taught. He made this around uh, late nineties, maybe. Uh, about how our our consciousness, the human consciousness, is moving in the direction of more and more interconnections between one mind and the next mind, and we are we think we are individuals growing, but really it's our human species that's be, that's evolving and becoming more and more aware. It's really cool. I check it out, the global brain. Anyway, that's the way that our society moves. And the more we can embrace change, the more expansive we are, the less resistance we have to the inevitable because things change. 
And this is the heart of what the Buddha spoke of. It was the thing that freed him. That was just the the thought before his awakening as he was underneath, sitting under the Bodhi tree. This is from the Buddha saying, Before my enlightenment, I thought in the case of form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness, what is the gratification, what's the danger, and what is the escape? Those five, form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness, those are the five aggregates, we've talked about this before, that make up the human experience, our body and our mind. And then he thought, in the case of each bodily pleasure and mental joy that arises in dependence on these five things, there there is the gratification. So there's joy, mental and physical joy, that arises. No, he's not. He's saying, yeah, it feels good. Sometimes there's some really good things being in this body and having this body in mind. The fact that these things are all impermanent, painful, and subject to change, that is the danger. Why? Because we get hooked on a feeling, as, uh, as the song goes. You know, I, I'm hooked on a feeling. Yeah, that's what's making us go around and around and around. Getting hooked on that feeling. Oh, it's so good, maybe a That is the danger. The disciplining and abandoning of desire and craving for them is the escape. So this is the, the, the thought that he said, wait a second, this is how things are. We get hooked on a feeling and we, we want to, um, es- he saw that escaping from that danger is the way. Now this is obviously e- easier said than done. This takes a, an ongoing practice. But to see, because things change, there's not going to be any lasting happiness. Now this is probably not new to you if you've been doing practice for any time. Okay, yeah, I got that. But sometimes it seems like such a a depressing thing that everything changes. You ever have that feeling? You know, gosh, everything, this is one of the five reflections, everything near and dear to me, I will be separated from. The Buddha said, think about that every day. Not to bum yourself out, but to see, oh, this is how it is. This is the way it is. Everything and everyone near and dear to me, I will be separated from. You say, gosh, did we have to have the game like that? Did it have to be constructed so that everything we love will be gone? (laughs) See, you never know. (laughs) Anything, by the way, that reminds me, that was pretty cosmic. <laughs> you know, if you happen to be sitting here and having any kind of consciousness at all, all of a sudden something fell in the middle. It was something from up there. I, I didn't move at all. I was really still. And all of a sudden, clang! Mm, you know, and a few people are, uh-oh, are we under attack here or something like that? You just never know. If that can happen, anything can happen, right? It's just, it was the time for that piece of metal to fall. I don't think anybody in the world could have predicted that. But there it was. Clink. Just time for it to fall. And the way the game is set up, on our human level, we say, oh, how could this be? This just, it seems so unfair or, or hard to take in. 
But on a global level, the way I think of it is that it's so amazing that the way of the universe is continual transformation. There's nothing static in this universe. Once it was put into motion, whether you relate to the Big Bang or whatever, it seems like there's something to that as it keeps on expanding. And it's amazing that humans can even comprehend that. But once everything was put into motion 13 and a half billion years ago or however long, I always wonder what happened, what was happening just before then, but um, other universes, whatever. But once everything was put into motion in this universe, the nature of everything is continual transformation. This is not just a static block, monolithic, unchanging, mm, that's it. No, it's just complete, infinitesimal and astronomical transformation in every single moment, every single moment. That's the way the game is played, or that's the way the game is set up. Part of that means that when we take form as Jenny or Andrew or Jaime, you know, there's a coming together for a few moments in those elements for a few years and poof, a unique expression of life and then going back into what I often refer to as the master recycling plan, you know, that it's just, it, it's continually changing. That's the way, it's not, and for us it's, oh, oh, that's so, that's so hard. But the universe is playing with itself and saying, oh, how incredible. You know, I don't know if it's saying how incredible. I would think it is just the lighting in the dance And rather than focusing on just the loss, the fact that everything will be lost to us, looking in the rear view mirror or looking behind and saying, oh, I've got to let go of that and I've got to let go of that too. I've got to let go of that too. That's just one vantage point. The other is, oh my goodness, infinite creativity, newness in every single moment. Amazing. I mean, talk about creative. How much more creative can it get than every single moment everything is changing into something else? And rather than it be depressing to just really see that, not just get it here, but to see that for yourself and to embody it and to um, even rejoice in it, in the mystery of it, the magnificence of it. Ah, this is the freedom, the, what they call the lila in Hinduism, the lila, the play of consciousness in the world, how it is just playing with itself all the time Mm-hmm. So, if you, if you think of change as a depressing thought, you know, and sometimes, yeah, oh, I don't want to let go of that, to really shift your perspective and your lens and see how magnificent it is. And also, the fact that if we are not willing to open up to it, we are caught in certain suffering. So we say, you know, oh, I don't want to be a Buddhist, or I don't want to be a meditator, then I have to accept that things change. Well, if you're not, what's the choice? What's the alternative? Not accepting that things change. Good luck. Have fun. You know. 
It's in the, it's in the denying that things change or the unwillingness to open up to it. That's the real dukkha. That's the real suffering. It, that, so impermanence, it's one of the, as probably many of you are familiar with, one of the three characteristics of experience or the three marks of existence. Impermanence, the fact, or Nietzsche, suffering, the fact that holding on to that which is impermanent is suffering, and the selfless nature of our existence, that we too are this impermanent flow of matter coming together, consciousness coming together, and there's nobody really behind the whole show to whom it's happening. It's just happening through us. And it's said that any one of those three is the doorway to liberation. That if you really, and, and different people have different doorways. For some, they just get suffering. You know, that's, their, that's been their curriculum, the, the heart of their curriculum. And it is just as valuable and powerful a doorway as the other two. Some people say, yeah, I get suffering. And because of their suffering, they're moved to wake up to the truth of things. Some people, um, a bit rarer, just get emptiness, anatta, the selfless nature of reality. And that's their doorway to see, oh, there's, there's no, no agent running the show. It's just all a show happening. Many people, for many people, impermanence is the, is the doorway when they, when they see the suffering that comes from impermanence. But you see for yourself, wow, things are really changing. That's one of the things about meditation that's so powerful. So you sit here, I was thinking, I had this thought while I was sitting, I must admit. Um, well, I was actually here pretty much for this sitting, but this thought came to me as I was just enjoying the stillness and, and thinking about that I was going to be talking about change. And the, the, the beauty of sitting meditation is the fact that you are basically, at least your outward body is completely still. And if you can have enough space in the mind so that you're not pulled by every thought that comes through, but you're just the space of awareness that in that stillness of the awareness and the, uh, and the physical stillness, change is so apparent. That's what reveals it. It's like, you know, if you're... If you're on a uh, if you're on a moving train, but you're you're on the train, you don't realize that it's moving, or you're in an airplane, it doesn't seem like, wow, we're going you know 600 miles an hour. It's like you know, oh, pass the can I have some tea, please? You know, it's not a big deal, but you're zooming around. But if you're outward, outside of it, and you see it flashing by, wow, it's going pretty fast. It's the same thing with the meditation that when you are still. And you're just noticing experience. It's wow! What a show that's going on. And sometimes it's, but often it's. That's okay. It doesn't. You don't need to stop things and clamp it down. To be, and be quiet so that then you can meditate. That's a great misunderstanding. Then you just get really frustrated and, 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 and fighting and, God, why can't I calm down? There's just so many things going on and my mind is here, my mind is there. You don't have to fix any of that. All you need to do is just step back and see, wow, look at the mind do its thing. Or look at all these sensations in the body just coming and going, wow. And there you are, the space of awareness that 
reveals change in every single moment. And when you get really, if you have a chance to go a bit deeper into a, a longer practice period, the moments themselves break up so that one moment, one in-breath, sometimes can become... And you just see, you know, like putting putting a drop of, of pond water under an electron microscope. Wow! There's a whole universe in there. And when you see that, and you see it for yourself, and it's not like you have to wait till that happens on a retreat. You can see it on whatever level you can. The more you see change, the more liberation is available. For me, the, uh, and I've shared this sometimes on retreats, the, a profound turning point in my own practice happened on my second retreat. I was not doing you know, deep samadhi. I was just kind of hanging on for dear life, actually, on that retreat. The first few days, I think, oh my God, why do people do this? Because the first couple of days, it takes some settling in, the mind and the body and all. Uh, it was a turning point retreat where I completely fell in love with the Dharma. But there I was, just, you know, my body ached, my mind was everywhere, and uh, and then I had this tremendous doubt, like, what are we all doing here? You know, this is so bizarre, you know. And I thought, I was sure everybody around was a phony, you know, because I felt like a phony. Yes, I'm being spiritual. Right. And I thought maybe even the the teachers didn't know what they were talking about, or they were phony. You know, yes, do this thing. You know, they'll get us through the 10 days and collect their dana or whatever. No, it wasn't that bad. I knew they're coming from the the right place, but it was was like nothing was working. And I couldn't sit, and then I tried to walk, and I was going back and forth walking, and I, I, I couldn't sit still, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, settle down. And then I went to my little cubicle in, uh, in this meditation center up in uh, Toledo, Washington. And I had a picture of Neem Karoli Baba, who I've said before often inspires me, uh, from Ram Dass's Be Here Now book. Uh, and he was my connection to uh, to the deeper truth, and he was kind of looking back at me, smiling at me as as I've had this exchange with him a few times in uh, in pictures, and there he was, kind of smiling, and I heard him kind of say in my mind, "Hmm, getting pretty freaked out, aren't we?" You know, <laughs> um, and I saw this like wave of this intense doubt just kind of lifted in a moment saying, God, I am just spinning this complete web of, of confusion. And I just lightened up. And I just, the, the spell broke. And I got really excited saying, oh, it was just doubt. It was this wave of doubt that I was sucked into. Right. And I got really excited, and I couldn't wait to tell my teacher, Joseph, the next interview, that I conquered doubt. <laughs> wait till you hear this. I conquered doubt. You can hear the words. It's a little much of a setup as it is. I conquered doubt. And unfortunately, the interview wasn't until the next morning. And I went through, I went from this great insight and exhilaration and inspiration to crashing, to getting confused, to then sleepy and then restless and then maybe a little bit of quiet again, remembering, oh yeah, it's just out. I went through as many mind states as one could possibly go through. And then I finally get to the interview, and I get in, and Joseph says, "Um, so, how's it going? And I said, in complete innocence and 
um, exasperation. It's always changing. And he said, that's it. I said, oh yeah, you keep on saying that, don't you? It's always changing. It really is always changing. Oh, it really is always changing. Oh, that's what you mean, that it's always changing. He said, yeah, that's what I mean. It's always changing. I mean, it sounds so obvious, right? I've been practicing for a few years up until that point, even shared with everybody in the world. It's always changing. It's always changing. But I got it on a whole other level. Oh, it really is always changing. So, so much faster than I could have thought. And that kind of, it's like the rug was pulled out. And I was just reading somebody saying, when the rug is pulled out of you, uh, from under you, that's the time to, to start learning how to dance on a moving carpet. You know? And that's what can happen. So it's the seeing of change that isn't bad news, it's actually um, really good news the more you can just kind of relax into it and realize you don't have to run the show. You couldn't anyway to begin with, but if you let go of trying to run the show and just show up instead of run the show, ah, then you can be in harmony with your life. This is the Buddha. So actually I'll read a little bit of Joseph at first and then quote the Buddha. This is from One Dharma. Uh, sometimes feel, people feel recognizing the truth of suffering, the fact that things change, conditions a pessimistic outlook on life, that somehow it's life-denying. Actually, it's quite the reverse. By denying what is true, the truth of impermanence, we live in a world of illusion and enchantment. Then when circumstances change in ways we don't like, we feel disappointed, angry, or bitter. The Buddha expressed the liberating power of seeing the unreliability of conditions like this. This is the Buddha. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Becoming disenchanted, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. Okay, what does that mean? Seeing how everything changes, one becomes disenchanted. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily disgusted with it, but you've broken through the enchantment of thinking, ah, I finally got it together. And from that breaking the spell of enchantment, one learns dispassion, that is not getting sucked into the next thing that you think is going to do it for you. doesn't mean you can't enjoy life. I'm teaching awakening joy. I think it's great to enjoy everything that there is to enjoy life. But to see that it's not about getting the next thing. It's about really opening up to the truth of what's here, appreciating when it's good, and opening with a heart of compassion when when it's difficult. And this very simple fact has been liberating minds for centuries. Sariputta, you probably know Sariputta was the main disciple of, of the Buddhas. Sariputta and Moggallana, Maha Moggallana, were his two main disciples and the, the wisest of all. Sariputta or Sariputra, sometimes it's in, in, uh, in uh, Sanskrit, um, became enlightened before he met the Buddha, he met this other monk who was a monk, uh, a, a follower of the Buddha, and um, and he had this really great demeanor. And uh, and Sariputta said, "Hey, you know, who's your teacher?" You know, and he said, "Oh, the Buddha." He said, "Well, what is he teaching? What is he teaching?" And he said, "Well, you know, I'm kind of new at this." Saji says, "I'm kind of new at this, so I, I think maybe." should go and, and see the Buddha and let him teach you. And Sariputta said, no, 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 just, just give me the gist. 
of the teaching. And Sari and uh, Asaji says, um, well, the gist as I see it is everything that has the nature to arise passes away. He got enlightened. Maybe it was the way that Asaji said it, I don't know, but <laughs> that just kind of woke him up. And then he went to Maha Mogalana, who was his good buddy, he was his good friend, and he said, wow, I just got it. And he said, what'd you get? Everything that has the nature to arise passes away. Mogulana got it too. They were two exceptional beings. But that, that is the liberating understanding. And the, 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 um, the chant that's, that's chanted at the end of, um, when somebody dies, there's a famous chant, Anicca vata sankara upadava yadamino upakitava niruchanti desang vupasamo sukho. You chant that three times. I love that chant. And it says, um, all conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. To live in harmony with this truth brings the highest happiness. So, change is inevitable. Like somebody says, you know, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Change is inevitable, suffering is optional. Because if you hold on, you get what Joseph calls rope burn. You know? But if you let go and open up to this mystery, this this miracle of continual change, ah, you're in harmony with life. And even it can be unsettling, even the good things, like getting married, or getting a, moving and getting a new house, or getting a new great job. Even the good things can be unsettling, because it's change, because it's moving into the unknown. But this is the lesson and the task we're learning. So as we go into this next year, rather than going in kicking and screaming or, or with the brakes on, we don't have to, you're not going in kicking and screaming now, but when things get a bit rough, to really see, oh, this is the way things are and how can I be in harmony with, it, with this? Then you uh, adopt uh, my son Adam's uh, great, uh, great motto, let go, let's go. And your life can be an adventure rather than a, an obstacle course. So just as uh, we, we just have a few moments, but I invite you to get in touch for a moment how do you, in your wisest moments, relate to change? When it's happening and you didn't call on it, what helps you remember to let go and let's go? What are your resources? What do you know to be true that you can rely on or learn to trust? And just know that after all the practice you've done, or even if it's a short time, there's something in you that's learning more and more to embrace change. That's learning more and more to live in harmony with life. With this continual transforming universe of which you are an expression
and see if you can plant the seed, the intention this coming year to see this perfect unfolding with its sorrows and joys as part of your curriculum to learn more and more to embrace change. I think from this space, we'll just do a closing metta because it's almost time to go. Just feeling your own sincere heart and the support of like-minded friends or of life. May I open up to change and keep learning to allow and show up and let go. May I learn to share my love well. May I awaken to my true nature And then to send these thoughts out to include everyone here and everyone in all directions, all beings, may all open up to the truth of change. May all awaken to their true nature and share their love. And may our coming here together be a benefit to all beings everywhere. Thank you very much. Happy New Year. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.